Of the many aspects of the war in Ukraine that shocked the world, the most immediate was the almost anachronistic scale of it. In the post-war on terror era, the large-scale invasion of a sovereign nation by another was hard to believe. The Iraq and Afghan wars have done lasting damage to the international standing of America, Britain, and the West as a concept, even before the military failure was established. In fact, there are two ways that this potentially directly impacted Ukraine. One is a Russian sense of Western weakness in a post-fall of Kabul era. Another is the ability to use the war on terror to discredit the West, and by extension, Ukraine wanting to be a part of it. However, the shock of the invasion was followed by another shock. That's a disastrous military performance of the Russian army and the repulsion or resistance in almost all theatres by the Ukrainians. In this episode, I want to better understand what impact the course of the war has had on Russia, the global security situation, the military-industrial complex, and its international aims. This is Undercurrents, War in Ukraine, a special edition of Chatham House's podcast. I'm Ned Sedgwick. I want to properly understand how the war fits in with other modern conflicts and what it means for the future of warfare. So I'm speaking to King's College in Chatham House's Andrew Dorman to better understand this. So Andrew, how would you characterise 21st century warfare previous to this war? Was there a pattern in how wars had been fought, the tactics, the technology? No, we've seen across the globe a whole series of different types of conflict types of war, ranging from more traditional wars involving traditional types of armed forces, clashes between different states and so forth, invasions. We saw the US-led invasion of Iraq in 2003, countries taking in and seizing territory from others. So if you think of the Russian the grab of Crimea. We've also seen conflicts such as with Islamic State, where you're seeing non-state actors using a variety of, of, of technologies and t- types of warfare. And you've seen lots of civil wars, whether it be in Ethiopia, whether it be in Syria and so forth. How did people think this war would fit in? Did they think it would be going into it? I mean, it seems so long ago now, but as I remember it, the expectation was that it would follow something along the Iraq or Afghanistan pattern. It would be a a major military power rolling in and very quickly taking the seat of government and then do that. Is is that fair? Was that the general assessment amongst the military community? I think there's a sort of a a combination of two things that people looked at. One was the the conventional phase of the 2003 US-led invasion of Iraq, which involved a quick relatively low casualties use of technology by the US-led forces that led to the occupation of Iraq and overthrow of the Saddam regime, plus a combination of that with how the Russian forces had grabbed Crimea before that. Mm. So it's sort of a combination of high technology, but also some special forces, some disinformation and a whole variety of non-kinetic type conflicts, use of um, cyber and so forth. And the general assumption was, and you see that through a lot of the think tanks and analysts writing beforehand, that it will be really quick, that actually Ukraine would fall very soon and Russia would gain control very quickly. In terms of the, the landscape of Ukraine, um, did that play a factor in this in this assumption? Because it's the areas that were invaded are, are famously flat. Did, did people just assume that tanks would be able to roll through? And, what, and why weren't they? Okay, I, th- I think what you see is assumption about technological edge. The assumption that the, the Russians had spent a lot of money in defence equipment and new technology in the decade before 
this conflict. So they've seen a lot of new equipment being acquired and the assumption was that it would give them a significant technological advantage. What we've actually seen is two things. One is the realization that you can buy a lot of really expensive equipment, but unless you can integrate it in terms of how you operate it, but also sustain it in terms of spares and ability to move it, then it doesn't matter how good a car or, high, for example, what high technology you buy, if you haven't got the spares to keep it running, it doesn't run. And also, if you haven't got the ability to actually operate it, to bring the different elements together and coordinate it and think about it through, that is problematic. So you see, on the one hand, the Russian forces have not been able to integrate this technology as well as they hope to. And the other is, I think people forgot the issue of things such as mass. Ukraine is a big country with a sizable population. And if you think of the US-led experience in Iraq or Afghanistan, Iraq being a good example, one of the problems that the American forces, led forces had was actually having seized control of the country, maintaining control, because they just didn't have the level of force density, the number of troops to occupy and maintain law and order. And now you look at the size of Ukraine and you look at the size of the Russian military and you realize they were in a worse situation. They were never going to create the same levels of density. So the assumption was that actually the Ukrainians would be fairly complicit and accepting of the Russian invasion, which they weren't. Why was Ukraine's, it looks like now, why was Ukraine's reorganization so effective um, where Russia's wasn't? Partly it comes down to numbers and the technology that they were given. So they've had a lot of training from Western forces. Um, one of the ways of offsetting things such as the ability to, uh, we talk about the idea of C4ISR, command, control, computers, intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance, the ability to coordinate and see what's going on on the ground and then coordinate your ability to fire at it and destroy it. So to, see, to get that picture of what's actually going on. One of the easy ways to counter that is to get into a city because you start to get, it's really difficult to see through buildings what's going on and a city is, is multidimensional. So you've got a lot of things going on underground. You've got things going overground. You can use the sewers. How do you know what's going on in the sewers? It's difficult to see. It's, it's difficult. It's really easy to lose people and to bog forces down in, in cities. So urban warfare, as we refer to it now, is one of the things Ukrainians are really focused on doing. It's to actually contain the Russian forces and, and, and get them in urban warfare and play to their own advantages. So it's fighting becomes much closer and they're using their, their, their firepower and equipment they've been given to maximum maximum effect. To be blunt, though, you know, we, the West, the US and UK tried training other militaries with much less success, Afghanistan being the most famous example of that. Why was it successful? And also, kind of tied to that, a big issue with the Russian military apparently has been the corruption you, you talk about not being able to maintain vehicles and maintain things. And part of that is because of the corruption. Ukraine, as well as many, uh, many positives, is a country with a history of corruption, well, not even history of corruption, well-documented corruption. Why, why do you think Ukraine escaped um, that, that corruption? And why do you think they took on the lessons? Well, a lot so of the equipment well? they're using... Um... So the, the problem that the Russians have had with their equipment, you've got some really high technology. You see a lot of vehicles moving around with radars and computers and so forth. And we saw that actually one of the areas that historically has always been an area of big corruption in Russian and previous, previously Soviet forces has been in, in the old area of spares. So actually 
individuals would create, wouldn't, would sell off spares, that the spares would not come through to the, org, the units that needed them. Um, so they just didn't have them. What you're seeing in the, with the Ukrainian forces, a lot of the technology they've got is, is relatively low-end technology, and it's not things you can necessarily sell off and make money on. So, so they haven't had so many areas which they can sense be corrupt on, and at the same scale that the Russians could do. And what you're seeing is a lot of equipment, things such as anti-tank missiles, are being sold to them um, in large numbers. So what they're doing is they're going into cities and, and into into forests and so forth, and then it's and using surprise on Russian forces at, with these anti-tank missiles and taking them out. We saw a ship and the Russians ships being hit by missiles so it's it's things like that that's what you're using these levels of technology and the ukraine's have the advantage here when it comes to the british and american training was the level of training hidden from the public or was it just not really relevant in the discourse at the time post 2014 yeah it it was it was public knowledge it was going on and there was training missions going on and and a lot of the equipment they were training them on is essentially defensive technology so it was surface-to-air missiles to counter aircraft coming in. It was anti-tank missiles to deal with tanks that had been invaded. Um, so the, you had a, a succession of training missions going on there and support going on there that the Russians are aware of, deeply unhappy about it, but not a lot they could do about it. Um, they can complain a lot, um, but not actually stop it happening. Um, so, and public, UK... Western public opinion is probably not that aware of it going on. It wasn't that it was hidden from them. They just have other things to focus on. If a, if a war did uh, widen, we've seen Ukraine hold Russia at bay. I mean, what is the realistic risk for even the UK being involved? Would we not, based on what we've seen, be able to quite easily turn the tide against Russia and push them out of Ukraine? Well, this is one of the reasons you've got a NATO conference, a scheduled NATO conference occurring at the moment. But one of the big questions is how do they think about, in a sense, what will be the defence of all NATO states? It's an area that they haven't focused on that much because they've been focused on the war on terror. Uh, They've been focused on a wider NATO role, NATO's involvement in Afghanistan, dealing with terrorism, and other areas support the African Union. They haven't necessarily focused that much on having to think about the physical defence of um, NATO countries. They've been aware of um, some computer and cyber attacks on them, and they've been doing some work on that. But now they're having to get their heads again round. How do you defend, potentially potentially have to defend, the borders of NATO countries? And that's what they're starting to think about. So one of the things they've started to announce is much larger numbers of forces are on high on uh, high readiness to be, to be moved to help defend um, NATO's borders and its countries. Um, so they're having to get their head around it. From a UK point of view, um, there is no real direct threat as such. If you think about it geographically, there's a lot of countries in the way between Russia and the United Kingdom. There could be odd clashes at sea, potentially, or in the air. And we've seen regularly Russian aircraft fly through international sp- airspace off the Irish, British and Irish coasts, um, causing problems because they don't put their transponders on. So the civilian airlines don't know they're there. So what you see is Royal Air Force aircraft and others scrambling and getting up and flying alongside them with transponders on. So the civilian airlines know, know those aircraft are there and don't they don't get in the way. I mean, flying, in, flying through civilian airlines, uh, air routes, is, it's not helpful uh, and a degree risky. Um, but they're entitled to do it because it's international airspace. 
So what you're saying in terms of escalation, I don't see it at the moment it likely to happen. But A, accidents happen, and B, not many people thought the Russians would actually invade Ukraine at the point to which they did. And the, I think the big question we big question we have is, where does Putin go from here? Why did they invade when they did? Why why did they go for that date? What what not date necessarily specifically, but why did they do it then? You know, the, if you go through military history and time and the various invasions of Russian territory or Ukrainian area, the golden rule is never invade those areas in spring or autumn because it, it it's wet and it gets very muddy and it and the roads get bogged down. So historically, invasions of Russia, and if you include Ukraine, and that's from the West, have never occurred. You know, you, you try to go for the summer months or the winter months when the ground's frozen. You don't do it when it's it's muddy and you can't move things through. So February was a very odd time to do it because actually it wasn't ideal climatically time to invade. I'm not a Russian specialist as such, but I think from talking to others, I think the assumption was it was going to be relatively straightforward. Uh, I think there was a misunderstanding from Putin through intelligence and so forth that it would be much easier to do than it was going to do. And they've been very surprised that it, it, it bogged down as it takes. What more could Britain and America in particular be doing to help Ukraine? There's a number of things that potentially could occur. I mean, and it's interesting, we talk about Britain and America supplying the arms. I don't think any of us imagined, you know, the likes of, you know, Finland, Sweden would a join, want to join NATO, or prepare to supply arms to another country to to fight Russia, and, you know, or Germany doing it. There's a whole series of countries supplying arms that we just four months ago nobody would have thought would have occurred, or if they had thought, we'd have all thought they were mad. Um, so there's a lot of countries supplying arms, and I think what we're seeing is how much is being consumed, ammunition, st- stocks, and so forth. So the Ukrainians need a lot more of that, and. There's other technologies they can have because one of the challenges you've got is there's one thing being on the defensive and, 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 and blocking the Russians' assaults. But then if you want to try and retake the lands that have been seized by Russia, that's a different different game entirely. And therefore, that, that pushes the Ukrainians into much more coordination of its forces and capabilities. So it starts to look at needing other types of capability, in particular long-range um, artillery and so forth. But there are other things that the West can do the importer of oil and gas. If you really want to make Russia, per se, struggle, you cut those types of sources off. It would have a significant effect on the West as well. But it depends on how much you, how much risk the, the West wants to take, how much pain the West wants to accept as part of its support for the Ukraine. Sanctions can be put through much harder than they are at the moment. I want to get to grips with what impact Russia tying up so much of its armed forces in a single conflict will have on its ability to carry out Putin's domestic and international goals. After all, it is an authoritarian regime, and much of its power relies on fear and the ability to maintain a level of strength. I'm speaking to Bettina Renz from the University of Nottingham, an expert in Russia's military, to get to grips with this. My name is Bettina Renz, and I'm a professor of international security at the University of Nottingham. Bettina, can you just explain how Russia was using its armed forces to, in, on a strategic level previously to the war? In many ways, Russia used its military like um, many other countries, especially countries that have great power aspirations, I suppose. So 
the main problem for Russia until, well, about 2000, in fact, was that its armed forces were just in a state of disrepair. They had not managed really to reform them in any way, shape or form. Uh, Russia still considered itself, even in the 90s, as a great power, uh, although no longer a superpower like during the Soviet times. It's always had its um, very strong nuclear arsenal. But, of course, the problem was that the conventional armed forces were falling into a state of disrepair. Um, it was clear that actually conventional military force continued to be relevant. Uh, lots of wars, of course, being fought um, around the world, uh, especially also after 9-11 and so on. So um, this is why Russia then embarked on a military modernization program pretty much soon after President Putin came into power. And again, of course, military is there to fight wars uh, and, and to win wars, but also uh, is used in other ways. Of course, it's a symbol of great power. First of all, it was for Russia. Um, and also it is used for the achievement of various foreign policy objectives. And as we have seen, well, in the 1990s, and of course now, especially in the war in Ukraine, but also already since 2014, the war against Georgia in 2008, one of Russia's foreign policy objectives, a central one, is to maintain what it sees as its sphere of influence or its uh, hegemonic power really in the region that used to be the Soviet um, Union. So this has been uh, one of the main ways in which Russia has been using its military power indirectly sometimes, but also um, extremely directly, obviously, now uh, in the war in Ukraine. Within domestic politics, I mean, actually, we've seen one of the explanations for, for the ferocity and, and um, scale of this war is that Putin is worried about um, a colour revolution at home. But in the 90s, there was an attempted military coup. Is there any indication of this happening? This is an enormous, very expensive armed forces. Is there any threat of this? And if, if not, why not? Russia does actually not have a tradition of military coups uh, where the military takes over power. The military has been involved in, in the 1991, of course, towards the end of the Soviet Union in, a, in an attempted coup against Gorbachev. But it wasn't only the military, it was also it was communist hardliners, essentially. Um, so Russia doesn't have a strong um, history of military coups. I think this is certainly not something that President Putin is concerned about. Uh, there's absolutely no indication that the military would be disloyal um, to the president or, or to those in power. In fact, uh, President Putin is very uh, strongly supported in the armed forces. He has done, from the point of view of the armed forces, quite a lot for them, of course, um, pumped a lot of money into them, really paid attention to them since he came to power in 2000. So that is not really something he's worried about. In terms of internal stability or regime stability, yes, of course, this is a, um, this is a, a fear, I suppose, of Putin. Of course, there isn't really domestically as the situation in Russia where there's any danger of uh, popular uprising against Putin, now less so even um, than before. There were some demonstrations around 2011 where people were not very happy with um, parliamentary elections and, and some other things happening. These were cracked down quite quickly. Um, when we talk about Russia's military, in fact, um, what people paid less attention to was, of course, not only that the armed forces, the regular armed forces were rebuilt under Putin, but also, of course, the internal security structures were um, strengthened considerably. So people know of the FSB, the Federal Security Service, 
that is, well, in charge of maintaining what Putin would call domestic order, which is also then suppression of the opposition and so on. And also in 2016, they created a, a brand new organization called the National Guard Service of Russia, which is a massive um, outfit, uh, several hundred thousands of um, officers and, and military personnel also, which, which also are uh, predominantly um, there really to maintain domestic order. So yes, Putin is, he wants to maintain his regime, but of course there, this isn't really based on any serious um, danger really to, to his regime at, at all. He has made sure that there is no such opposition. So the regime in Russia is pretty strong, uh, I would say. How has Russia's arms trade played into their their soft power? Do do Russia buy arms from abroad, or or are they are they purely an arms builder and exporter? A bit of both, of course. Okay, so when it comes to Russian defense industry and the stuff they export, what they're strong in are the so-called legacy systems. So things they were always good at building, even during Soviet times already. Uh, most of all, um, fighter jets, we all know, like the MiG and Sukhoi fighters. This is Russia's biggest um, export, uh, air defense systems and so on, armored vehicles, missiles, um, nuclear submarines. Also, Russia is strong in building. What they haven't been so strong in, uh, or where they haven't succeeded so much, and, and this has been part of military modernization, but not so successful, is to really make that jump to 21st century you know, advanced um, high-tech kit. And then before the annexation of Crimea, Russia started importing quite a lot of components from abroad for this, so electronic components, especially for shipbuilding and for some other um, defense equipment. But this, of course, has been cut off. Russia has been cut off from this um, possibility. So there have been sanctions, of course, um, for especially Western defense imports into Russia since 2014. But these were smaller components. So Russia mostly has been building its own um, military kit. Now, Russia also is one of the largest defense exporters. And so, yeah, we have seen, of course, there have been a lot of problems with the military hardware Russia has been using in Ukraine since February and so on. But I don't really think that this will impact its ability to sell this kind of equipment also in the future. Because again, what Russia is exporting are these kind of legacy systems, so fighter jets, um, uh, armored vehicles and, and, and rifles, AK-47s, and so on. The, the main buyers of, of Russian military equipment are countries like China, India, um, Algeria, Egypt, Vietnam, and some others. Um, some of them are dependent on Russia, mostly like Belarus, for example, will import pretty much everything from Russia. But others like China and India, they... Um, focus here on specific sort of niche products like aircraft um, or air defense systems. Will the bay be put off by Russia's performance in, in Ukraine? Um, I don't think so, because again here, the poor performance of Russian troops was not primarily down really to the performance of this hardware. There are many other reasons um, for that. So they were poorly maintained. Obviously, corruption had done its thing, uh, meaning that a lot of the equipment um, didn't work, the problems with logistics and so on. But it's not a case that Russian aircraft or something like that don't work as a whole. So the only reason why these countries would stop importing defense equipment for Russia would be political. But again, I don't see um, that happening because even here, we have to bear in mind that the international condemnation of Russia 
and of Russian, Russia's brutality and the war in Ukraine is not universal. Um, China, India, Algeria, and so on do not have a reason as such to stop importing Russian products um, in, in the future. But of course, again, uh, Russia will now need a lot more of its own um, equipment. Um, again, they will fall, fall further and further behind in the production of more high-tech kit. There has been a lot of talk in Russia about artificial intelligence and robotization and so on. But if you really look at what they actually achieved, um, they are still very far behind. And of course, with the sanctions, that is not going to help them. You mentioned earlier their, their ability to maintain their borders. On the subject of their, their um, inability to maintain their armed forces properly and countries like Georgia or even, even a country like Japan that has a long-standing um, border dispute um, with, with Russia, is there any sense that this is that there might be an opportunity coming up to settle that whilst Russia is distracted with what's going on in Ukraine? I think countries will be very careful not to do that because, again, Russia is distracted, of course. Uh, Russia certainly could not fight another large-scale war of, of this scale uh, at the same time. But still, I, I, I would not expect a country like Georgia to think that this is their opportunity to, to, for land grab. I mean, uh, or like from, their point, from the Russian point of view, uh, it would be seen like that. Um, it would be a very dangerous move. I think they're aware of that. In fact, what we can see with um, some of Russia's neighbors is that they're treading very, very carefully because, of course, they see what is happening, what Russia is doing to Ukraine as a result of Russia not being happy of, of where Ukraine is going. So I don't really, uh, don't really see this as a danger or as a, as a serious um, possibility of happening uh, anytime soon. Is there a sense within Russia, as far as we're aware, that their poor performance in the war uh, to date has, has impacted their place in the world? Um, is it still this kind of siege mentality, us against, us against the West? Or, or is there any indication that there's a sense that oh, we, we, we might not be a great power? Of course, we need to, to bear in mind that the reason Putin is popular and was popular for so long, not only, but mostly or in large parts, was based on what people in Russia saw as a successful foreign policy. So the perception that Yeltsin had humiliated Russia in the eyes of the world and that Putin then had returned the country to its rightful place in, in the world. And this is also very much, of course, what Putin has been saying all along, that this is his aim um, and so on. In many ways, the course of this war seems to be playing out in the exact opposite way to how I remember the war in Iraq and Afghanistan. Whereas the coalition invasions were an almost immediate military walkover, it was followed by domestic and international disgrace. Putin seems to have managed to polarise the world while suffering no immediate domestic consequences. Although, again, it's easy to forget that the war is in a very early stage. Despite the pushback from Kiev, Sumy and Kharkiv, Russia's ability to hurt the people of Ukraine hasn't been seriously blunted. In a way, what's been proved is that the world can't actually apply normal rules to Russia. The only thing predictable is probably their capacity for aggression. How can multilateralism survive when someone so obviously goes against the norm like this? Next week, we'll be trying to understand just that. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Undercurrents, War in Ukraine. And thank you to Arizia Lutsevich and Georgi Kasyanov. If you want to learn more about what's going on in Ukraine, head to Chatham House's website, chathamhouse.org. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this issue and on what aspects you want us to cover next. You can find us on all social media at Chatham House. I've been your host, Ed Sedgwick. The producer is David Dargahi from Earshot Strategies. And thanks also to Nick Capling at Chatham House.